Okay, we're looking at the, at the subject of prayer now as we study the shorter catechism, the questions in it. So this is question 99. And it's kind of interesting how the questions fall out as question 100 begins the Lord's Prayer. and talks about the preface of the Lord's Prayer and then all the questions, the way the numbers fall out. The first petition is 101, second petition is 102, and so on. So uh, the catechism basically goes along through in, in that manner. But these are introductory questions to prayer. We had last week, what is prayer? And this week we have the rule of prayer. So let's begin by reciting this question. Let's confess the answer together from question 99. Question 99 is, what rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Does it seem strange to you, perhaps, to talk about the rule of prayer? Some people it wouldn't seem strange to at all, but some people it might seem a little strange. Isn't real prayer supposed to be spontaneous and free? I mean, how can it be sincere if it's governed and bound about by rules? It ought to be the free expression of our hearts before God, should it not? Well, of course, prayer is most certainly supposed to be, as we saw last week, a lifting up of our true desires, not pretended desires, but our desires to God for the things. But but that does not mean that all of our desires are proper, as we saw last week. We saw that, yes, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God and should be heartfelt, but our desires should also be according to His will. So those things need to go together for right prayer. If you're planning a bank robbery, I illustrated to you, you certainly desire, it's a true desire that you would be successful in pulling off that bank robbery and that you wouldn't get caught. So you can lift up a true, sincere desire to God, bless my bank robbery and help me not to get caught. And you're praying sincerely, but it's not according to what is God's will, according to God's will. So the prayer is displeasing to God. If we know that the Lord is our if we know the Lord is our savior, we have come to recognize that there is nothing sacred or God-given about our desires in themselves. God has changed our heart and he has given us new desires that replace some pretty wretched desires. He's given us new desires that are pleasing to him, but we know that many of our desires are still corrupt and twisted. I mean, some of them we know very well are corrupt and twisted, and there's other ones that um, we are suspicious of because, you know, we know that as time goes by, we begin to see things that we didn't see before in our lives. So as believers, we want, we want God to direct us in what we should be praying for, to give us guidance, and He has given us a lot of guidance. You know, today, the world tends to think that our desires are sacred. But even they know that that's not really true. Um, you know, like, like the desire to rob a bank. You know, is, is that a sacred desire that people have? I don't think so. There are many desires that we have that we need to repent of. So in our scripture reading today from Luke 11, we'll see that Jesus' disciples wanted to have direction 
They wanted to have counsel for their prayers, how they should pray. So listen as I read this to you. It's from Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying, Jesus was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I'm sure that most of you will recognize these words, you know, more or less. Most people have heard this prayer or the one that's very much like it in Matthew. The disciples probably recognized these words, too, because it is essentially the same prayer that Jesus had taught when he preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The prayer, that prayer is recorded in Matthew 6, 9 through 15, the passage that we usually refer to as the Lord's Prayer and that we usually recite, the one in Matthew. When Jesus preached that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching to the multitude. But here you see that he had been alone with his disciples, it says, in a certain place. And when they hear him pray, they, they realize that uh, what we surely would realize if we heard him, that our prayers could use some help. <laughs> if we were praying, if Jesus was in the midst of us praying, we would say, I don't think I know how to pray very well. And so they make this request when they hear him, Lord, teach us to pray. And you see that the Lord does not hesitate to give them the instruction that they ask. He doesn't say, you don't don't need any instruction. No, he he gives them instruction. Even though we might see directions and rules for prayer then as alien to the true spirit of prayer, our Lord Jesus does not see it that way. He sees that it's helpful to have direction. He does not say, you don't need any rules for prayer, just talk to God. Instead, he repeats the formula that he had given publicly in the Sermon on the Mount, now to them privately. Now, if we, the modern church, think that rules of direction ruin real prayer, then we're mistaken because our thoughts about prayer are not in line with the thoughts of our Lord about prayer. So we should be thankful for the Lord's help with our prayers. Okay then, but how do we find out what prayers are pleasing to him? How do we learn those desires that are agreeable to his will? In other words, what rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? How thankful we should be that the Lord gives us guidance about prayer throughout the pages of Scripture. As our catechism says, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God or is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction or for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
especially talking about ministers having what they need to be able to bring to God's people. But these verses teach all of us that the Bible is sufficient to give us everything that we need to know to do what God has called us to do, the good work. That means the words, the, the words that are used here to thoroughly equip are often used with reference to furnishing a ship to go out to sea. You had to make sure that you had everything on your ship when you loaded it up because you couldn't go to the corner store and buy the few things that you forgot to load up. Whatever you have, you have when you're out at sea. And so this says you've got everything you need to furnish you for prayer, for all things that you need to serve God. So if God has given us all that we need in Scripture to equip us for every good work, that means that he's given us all that we need for prayer because prayer is a good work. So this afternoon, I want to try to give you a greater appreciation for all that is in the scripture to help us in our prayer. And there's a lot. We're just, we're just touching on things that we could use many, many other examples. And I'm going to, it's going to be like a shotgun approach here with a whole bunch of different things that, that we have. So um, it's just a sampling. Okay, let's begin. First, the Bible directs us in prayer by giving us excellent examples of prayer. We have, for example, Abraham's intercession for Sodom in Genesis 18, and 23. You remember that God expressly pointed out to Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom because of its wickedness. It was sort of an invitation to pray. It seems that God was prompting Abraham to pray here because Abraham's nephew Lot lived there. So when he heard that it was going to be destroyed, he wanted to intercede for the sake of Lot. Abraham might have wanted to intercede for the sake of the people of Sodom as well, but particularly he was motivated because of Lot, asking God if he would spare the place if there were 50 righteous persons there. That was a good start for him. Perhaps you remember how he kept interceding and working his way down, and he got down to 10 eventually. What if there are Ten there. And uh, now, of course, in the end, God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But he did do what Abraham really wanted and spared Lot, sending angels who dragged him right out of the city when he was reluctant to go. Here we have a wonderful example of intercessory prayer. So this is what we need to do. We, We pray for people that we care about, that God would, would deliver them. In Genesis 32, we have an example of persistence in prayer. Here, the Lord comes to Jacob and wrestles with him. Jacob had been trying to get along by his own wits, but here God breaks him, and Jacob comes to realize that he can't get along without the Lord. Esau is coming, all kinds of things are happening, and he's overwhelmed. And so instead of relying on his cleverness as he had done so often, Jacob does what he needed to do all along. And he clings to the Lord and he refuses to let him go. Jacob wanted the right things, didn't he? He wanted the blessing of God and things like that. But then in order to get it, he used manipulation and you know, deceiving his father and dressing up and all, all that nonsense that he did. But now Jacob, instead of relying on his own clever plan, He's going to cry out to God. This is what he needed to do. He says, Genesis 32, 26, I will not let you go 
unless you bless me. And God commends him for his inflexible persistence in prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't complain to him. You might complain along the way, but that's to test him. He commends him and even changes his name from Jacob to Israel because he prevailed with God in prayer. That is what I have told you before real prayer does. Remember, I preached a sermon a number of years ago on the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile, and Jesus refused to help her initially, and she persisted in prayer, and I called her a Gentile Israelite, because an Israelite is someone that prays and prevails with God. We have good examples of that. If we skip on over to Exodus 32, we have Moses' intercession for Israel after they had worshipped the golden calf. Though Moses did not participate in that sin, he, like a good father or a good pastor, took responsibility for it. God said that he would raise up another nation for Moses, and Moses refused that. He said, no, I'm not going to accept that. He, remembered, he, he reminded God of his covenant promise to Israel, and he raised the argument that God's reputation before the nations would be ruined. You brought your people out and then you couldn't manage them? You couldn't preserve them? How can this be? What will the nations say? You must learn to pray like that too. It is appropriate to use arguments in your prayer. This is, this is what you do when you have real, true, ardent desires for things that are eternally significant. And you, you don't just say, oh, whatever. And go your way. That's not, that's not right praying. I, would, um, I, I do not approve of Eli when he was told that his sons would, would be destroyed and removed from the priesthood and so on. He said, whatever seems good to the Lord. A lot, sometimes commentators will commend him. I think Eli should have done what is done here with Moses. He should have said, no, Lord, and continue to pray as long as there was any hope. Then in the next chapter, we have Moses' prayer to God to see God's glory. Exodus 33, 18. This is an excellent prayer for us to imitate. Moses had seen so much of God's glory already, spoken to God face to face as it is described, but we should ask God to show us more of his glory. You don't be content about that. Don't say, oh, I've seen enough. I've seen enough of God. I know God well enough. Oh, this is something you should be praying. Show me your glory. And it pleased God. He answered it. And he showed Moses more glory. And then Moses wanted to see more glory after that. That's the way it works. In 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 29, we have David's prayer of thanksgiving for God's covenant mercies. This prayer is a lesson in how to express humble gratitude to God. That's very important. It's here that we have David's memorable line, where he says, it's kind of like Psalm 8, who am I and what is my house that you have brought me this far? How can it be that you made promises to me, David, that I would have a son that would sit on the throne forever and ever? How can it be? This is a great prayer to pray before the baptism of one of your children or when you're entering into a new calling from the Lord, when when you're getting married or when you're entering a new career or into service as an officer in the church, or even into church membership. Lord, who am I? 
And in some cases, what is my house that you have brought me this far? This is a good thing to express your gratitude. In 1 Kings 3, 4-9, there is Solomon's famous prayer for wisdom. He confessed that he was but a child and had been given responsibility to rule God's heritage. And so he pled for wisdom. I remember uh, preaching on that very subject at Levi's baptism several years ago. The Lord said that he would be pleased, that he was pleased with Solomon's prayer for wisdom. And so parents need to pray for wisdom in the training up of their children. We should have a desire like Solomon. I don't know how to come in and go out. I don't know how to be a good parent. Lord, you teach me. You show me. What an appropriate prayer for a young father with his first child and a mother as they look at the responsibility that has been laid on them to govern their household. And in 1 Kings 18, 36 through 37, we have Elijah's prayer to God for God to show his power before the Baal-worshipping Israelites. You remember that simple and pointed prayer in 1 Kings 18, 36? Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Here, here is Elijah with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And here's Elijah, you know, more or less by himself. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. You see the earnestness that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. God is honored by the desire and prayer for him to show himself to the people who have forgotten him. Pray that today is something like that for the people of our nation. This is the prayer that caused fire to come down from heaven. Psalm 42 gives us an example of prayer for the despondent, for one who is estranged from God. The psalmist speaks of the joy that he once had in fellowship with the Lord and going up to his house. And now for some reason, He has been cut off. Perhaps it was when David was unable to go because Saul was trying to kill him. Don't know for sure about that, but but he he boldly asks, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the of the enemy? God is honored by such prayers when we show our yearning love for him, when we are feeling far away from him. If such prayers were not given us, In Scripture, we might be hesitant to pray this way. Maybe we're complaining. Maybe it's not appropriate for us to say such things. But here we have in this song and many others like it that God has given us in the songs that he has given us to sing. Here we have clear direction from the Lord that he is pleased for us to ask him if he has forgotten us and has seemed to turn his face away. Even Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? In Psalm 51, we have David's great prayer of personal confession after he had committed the sin of murder and adultery. He pleads with the Lord for cleansing and he confesses against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And again, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Here you see 
that there's a twofold nature to David's confession as there should be to ours. In other words, we follow the example that we're given here. He confesses the particular sin that he had committed or sins, the adultery and the murder. But he also confesses that he is a sinner by nature, that he was born as a sinner. This is not an excuse. I was born a sinner, so I couldn't help it. It's rather an expression of the depth of his sin. This, is, this didn't just come out as something I did that wasn't true to who I am. It came right up out of who I am. You know, it's a, it's a deeper confession. I did this wicked deed because I have been born in sin. I have wickedness within me right to the core. In Daniel 9, we have Daniel's prayer of another kind of confession, corporate confession. Here we see Daniel identifying himself with his sinful nation and saying not, Lord, they have sinned against you, but we have sinned against you. We looked at that when the, when the pandemic first broke out a few years ago. He says, to us belongs shame of face, for we have sinned against you, but to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Oh, that we would learn to pray that way for our nation and for our church, that we would care, that we would include ourselves, even as our Lord includes himself when he intercedes for us. And of course, there are the prayers of Jesus that we should imitate. There is his earnest prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, when he said, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This teaches us to pray earnestly for deliverance in our trials. And then there is Jesus' great prayer for the church in John 17, where he prayed that we might be sanctified by the truth and that we might be kept by God's power and that at last we would be brought to behold the glory of Jesus with the Father and to share in that glory that he has. Kind of what we talked about today, isn't it? At the Sharing in the dominion that he obtained for us under God and over creation. Then there are Paul's prayers for the church. I remember as a young Christian being greatly influenced by this when a friend of mine who was studying those prayers commented to me about this and how we see Paul that he prays for the Philippians to have discernment that they might know how to love. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. For the Ephesians to be strengthened, to know the hope of God's calling, to discern his love and power. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22 and 3, 14 through 21. For the Colossians to have wisdom and grace, to walk worthy of God. Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And I, I was challenged because I realized that I didn't pray for those things. Like the thing that I would pray for is, you know, so-and-so that was sick or so-and-so that was hurt or so-and-so that needed something. We should pray for those things too. But we should especially pray like Paul does, that people would have wisdom and discernment to live for God and that they would live for God. These prayers guide us in how we ought to pray for the church so the word can correct us and help us to see these things. So often our prayers do not include the things that Paul stresses. It may include other things that are important, but we want to have a a uniformity about us. And then there is John's prayer for Gaius' health. He says, 3 John, verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So here we're taught to pray for each other's physical health. 
God has given us direction in this way to pray for physical needs of others when we learn about their physical infirmities. So how do we know what we should pray for? Looking at the examples. You see that there are many examples of prayer given in the word. But examples are not the only way that God uses his word to direct us in prayer or that we should use the word to learn how to pray. Second, the Bible directs us in prayer by showing us our needs, things that we ought to be praying about. One of the best ways to understand what your most important needs are is to look and see what God has promised to those that he loves. Those are the things you should be praying for. The things he promises are all things that we need and that we should pray for. He promises to give us grace to obey. Pray for this. He promises to give us the Holy Spirit. Pray for this. He promises that we will overcome the world. Pray for that. He promises that we will continue in his way, persevere. Pray that we will. He promises that he will comfort us in our sorrows. Pray that he will. He promises that he will reveal his glory to us. Pray that he will. He promises to give us wisdom. Pray that he will give us wisdom. Another way to discover what your needs are is to look at what God has commanded. As soon as you see what God has commanded, you should immediately pray for grace to obey what is commanded. Have you ever prayed through the Ten Commandments? It's a great thing to do. Here is a list of ten things every Christian needs in his life. Ask God to give you these things. Likewise, in John 13, Jesus tells us that to love each other as he has loved us. When you hear that, then you should not just feel burdened that you don't love others the way Jesus has loved them, but you should pray. We have a God of grace, and it's a call for a direction for us to pray. You, should, you could pray through 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Then there are those passages that expose our needs in other ways. Hebrews four twelve through 13 tells us that all is naked and open before God. That should humble you and lead you to pray for God to show you the sins that he sees. You're naked before him and to cleanse your heart from those sins. Much as David prays in Psalm 139, where he says, you know, search me, show me if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Romans 3 tells us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it tells us that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. What an encouragement it is hearing that to pray for God's forgiveness as we confess our sin. Then there are those passages that set forth our everyday responsibilities in the world. There is that great section in Hebrews chapter 5 where we're told how to, we ought to submit to one another. It runs from 5.22 through 6.9 and it calls us to godly marriages, godly parenting, and godly work relationships. When you read those challenging words and you see what God wants for your homes and for your house and for your labor, should it not bring you to your knees to ask for God's help? Matthew 28, 18 calls us to make disciples of all the nations. It tells us that Christ will be with us and that he has all authority in heaven and earth. What should you do when you hear that? Dare we hear this commission from the Lord and not pray? 
for our ability to execute that commission? Dare we attempt to do this without calling on his name to say, I've got my orders and we march out without seeking the help of the Lord? Then there are those passages that speak of our need for solid preaching. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 speaks of the preaching of the word. Here Paul commands Timothy to faithfully preach the word because people will not want sound doctrine, but they will look for preaching and teaching that will tickle their ears. They should, this should stir us up to pray for solid preaching in our midst, to pray that preachers would be faithful, and also to pray that we as hearers will be faithful and that we will be looking for the right things and not silly things that, that we might want instead. In Luke 10, 2, Jesus expressly calls us to pray for laborers. Thus he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, send out preachers. We have seen God's answering this prayer in our presbytery. It's very encouraging. A number of years ago, I admonished you to pray for laborers. We had a shortage of laborers. And God has given us a lot of laborers in answer to that prayer. God has been raising up young men to preach the gospel in his name. Let's continue to pray that he will give us laborers here to aid us. Okay, so you see that the Bible guides you not only by examples of prayer, but also by exposing your needs so that you might pray according to those needs. But that is still not nearly all the guidance that you're given in this scripture. Third, the Bible directs us in prayer by showing us what God has done so that we might know what to give thanks for. Genesis 1 teaches us that God made the world and everything in it, including us. God even gave us the weekly Sabbath in order to be a day that we give thanks and praise to him for making the world. We remember creation on this on the Sabbath. The great sin that leads to idolatry and blindness is, according to Romans 1, ingratitude to God who created us. So when you hear about what God has made, that should lead you to give thanks. You know, this is one of the reasons that whenever we hear the word, we always look to God. We pray and we ask for help. We ask for application. We give thanks for what we have learned about God. Psalm 40 teaches us to thank God for bringing us up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and for establishing our feet on a rock. If you have been rescued from your miserable and desperate bondage to sin, then that is surely a cause to give thanks and to keep on giving thanks. Psalm 103 speaks of how he heals us, forgives us, and how he remembers us, remembers our weakness. This ought to lead us to express thanks for these things. Lord, you have shown mercy to your servant. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. When we read that, we don't say, oh, that's nice. But we say, thank you, Lord. John 3.16 tells us how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Can you know Jesus and understand what he has done? And read such things without giving thanks? Acts 2 tells us of how the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. Do you thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given to the church? 
the Spirit who enables us to believe and receive the Word of God, to be convicted of our sins, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Spirit who empowers us to serve. That's something to give thanks for. Psalm 19 speaks to the Bible and how useful it is. It describes how it makes us wise for salvation, how it is faithful and trustworthy in every way. Do you thank God for God's Word when you read a passage like that? 2 Corinthians 9 speaks of God's physical provision for us and how He provides for us so that we can share with others and so that they and we will be able to give thanks to God. We should be very thankful for our daily provision. What if we didn't have it? Where would we be? We would be very different attitude about the things that we eat. Fourth, the Bible directs us in prayer by showing us what God is like so that we will know how to praise him. If we did not have direction from the word, we might ascribe all sorts of things to God that we think he ought to have or maybe think he does have in in his attributes and such things. And then our praise would be all twisted and perverted. We need the word of God to guide us in our praise. As fallen creatures, our thoughts of God are twisted and contorted. But scripture is given to to straighten us out, if only we will hear. The Bible tells us that God is absolutely sovereign. We need to praise him for this. It says that whatever he pleases, he does, and that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. You might not always like the things that he does. What afflictions have you experienced? That teaches you that they are from God. He works all things after the counsel of his will. When enemy armies come, God sent them. Never does do armies come and God not acknowledge that he is the one who sent them. When a storm comes, God sent the storm. When pandemics come, God sent the pandemic. Even the great flood didn't just happen. God sent the flood. Very clearly, very plainly, we're told these things. We don't like to think of God as being so powerful and so angry with us. So we either deny his power or his anger, or we deny both until we come to the word. And then we see that God, it is God's power and it is his anger. And we have to accept that. Then we learn that we ought to praise him both for his power and for his wrath. Many of the Psalms direct us in such praise. Psalm 2, for example, Psalm 29, which is about the flood, praising God for his mighty hand that breaks the cedar trees and such. Or Psalm 94, God of vengeance, shine forth. This is very alien to us today because we think that it is a defect in God. And so see, that's how we go idolatrous. And we don't thank God for things like his wrath and his power because you don't like them. But we need to praise God for all that he is. We're easily mistaken. I've told you before that there are times in earlier days, medieval times, when people had a hard time with God's forgiveness. Because forgiveness was something that weak people did and weak persons. And so for God to forgive was kind of an offense to them. You know, you have to go and do a bunch of penance and you have to do a bunch of other things for God to freely forgive. They, they had the opposite problem that we have. We say, well, well, why would God be angry with me? 
And they say, how can God accept me if he's a holy, great God? He can't possibly accept someone like me. And, you know, there's, there's, different, there's different errors that people have at different times. They couldn't praise God properly for forgiving. And we can't praise him properly for his wrath and judgment that brings glory to, in, to his name. We learn from Scripture also of God's mercy and grace, of course. We're told that he sent Christ because of his great love for the world. We're told that he is merciful and gracious and full of compassion. We have Psalms like Psalm 85, 103, 130 that lead us to praise him for these attributes. So it's not that we do one without the other. We need God's word to give us a full picture of who God is and to praise him for all that he is. Without the scripture to guide us, we would get it all wrong when it comes to praising God. And that would be a dreadful mistake. It's called idolatry when we look at God in a way that's different than what he really is. Fifth, the Bible directs us in prayer by telling us the manner in which we ought to pray. There is so much about this in the Bible. We looked at some of this last week. That There are the warnings against improper prayers. Sometimes we say, well, how could someone pray improperly? Well, there's warnings against ostentatious prayers that are prayed to be seen by men rather than by God. Against vain repetitions in prayer, thinking that we will be heard for our much speaking. Against praying when there is sin in our hearts. We need to repent of our sin as we come to God. We aren't coming to God as God if we come lodging sin in our heart, unless we're coming to repent of that sin. You start with that. There are parables calling us to persistence in prayer. The prayer of the unjust, or the parable of the unjust judge, where the widow keeps on going back and back and back and back until she gets what we heard, what, what she wants. We saw that with, uh, with Jacob's example earlier. The parable about the man who bangs on the door of his friend in the middle of the night because he wants bread and he keeps on banging until he gets what he's asked. That's, that's given to us as a model. Of, of the manner in which we ought to pray with persistence. And of course, we are to come to God with awe and reverence, with respect. As we saw last week, we're to come in Jesus' name, knowing that we are unworthy to come before God except through Jesus' pardon and shed blood. We are taught that our prayers are to be fervent. James 5.16, the, fervent prayer of a, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So now we have seen five ways that the Bible directs us in knowing how to pray. It gives us examples in prayer. It exposes our needs so that we can know what to pray for. It shows us what God has done so that we can give thanks. It shows us what we ought to be praising God for. And it gives us lots of counsel about how we should pray. But now lastly, I want to show you the special guidance that God has given us in his word to direct us in our prayers. Sixth, the Bible directs us in praying by giving us the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. The Lord's Prayer, that it is a model, is evident in Matthew 6, 9, where Jesus introduces the prayer with these words. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, and so on. The words, in this manner, indicate that Jesus is here giving us a kind of outline for prayer. It is something like what the Ten Commandments are to the moral law, 
a comprehensive summary. The Lord's Prayer is, in particular, a comprehensive summary of the supplications that we are to bring to God, especially of the supplications, the things that we ask for. Of course, there are other kinds of prayer in the Bible besides supplication. Supplication has to do, again, with the things that we ask for. But praise and thanksgiving are also important parts of prayer. But the Lord's Prayer summarizes not those kind of things, but the requests that we would bring before God. What things should we be asking for? As this is a model, you should not feel bound to use the particular words. Unlike singing, we're not given a book of prayers, only a model for our prayers, a single model that we're given. Of course, it is true that many of the Psalms are prayers, but they were all put in in the collection that is intended for the church to sing, the book of praises that God gave to his people. Proper prayer by nature should not be combined to fixed words, confined to fixed words, not combined, but confined to fixed words, because we're commanded to pray for specific things around us. And if you only pray form prayers, then you're not praying in the way that we're taught. We're to pray for the sick, for the wayward, for one another, for help in specific tasks, in specific situations that we find ourselves in, for our nation, for rain in times of drought, or withholding of rain in times of flood. Some of our best prayers are the times when there is a withholding of rain. We pray specifically about that, not when we pray, Lord, in like a, a generalized prayer. Whenever there is drought, then send rain, and when there's a flood, then withhold the rain, you know, something like that. We're told to confess also our particular sins to the Lord. So the Bible would be mighty big if it had to have all that and it is some example that we could use or our prayer book would be mighty thick. So we cannot pray or write if we confine ourselves to only a book of prayers. Yet it is also proper to pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim and even to have other prayers that we might write out and pray as a regular thing. Even though the Sermon on the Mount, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces this prayer with the words, in this prayer, in this manner, therefore, pray. When he reminds his disciples about this prayer, in, in Luke chapter eleven, he says, "When you pray, say, Our Father." He doesn't say pray in this manner, but he says, "Say, say these words." You notice when you pray, say this. This makes it clear that we can at times recite this prayer verbatim. Some of you who have joined us for family worship, my family for family worship, you know that we say the Lord's Prayer every day as a family when we have our family worship. Another way this model prayer helps us is by helping us maintain a God-centered focus in our prayers. It's easy for us to get so caught up praying for our needs in this world and to forget to pray that God's name would be hallowed. That's the main purpose of our life, isn't it? that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the Lord's Prayer reminds us to pray for that. We might not ever think to pray for that if we just willy-nilly pray. The Lord's Prayer gives us some guidance here. Let's begin by praying for God's glory. Notice as well that much of what is found in the prayer is prayer against sin. 
It's God's will that God's will would be done, that we would be forgiven, that we would not be led into temptation. We might not include those things so readily in our prayers because we get caught up about the immediate needs that we have and we don't think about that. So when we have the Lord's Prayer as our model, it says, hey, pray a lot about your sin and things that are related to that. This prayer also teaches us to be simple and direct in our prayers. In the context of Matthew, Jesus is speaking about against ostentation and vain repetition in prayer, which he says those are the things that characterize hypocrite's prayer. The Lord's prayer is reverent, but it's simple and direct. It's not full of flowery and mysterious language. It consists of straightforward requests that are brought to God. This is how we are to pray. So as we continue to study the catechism, we will be looking at the Lord's Prayer in much more detail. Very much the way we looked at the Ten Commandments in detail when we looked at God's law. You see, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about that this week. It's interesting that we have the Ten Commandments given to us twice in slightly different contexts and slightly different ways. We have them in Exodus 20. And then we have the restatement of them in Deuteronomy 5 after the 40 years of the wilderness when they were getting ready to go into the land. And there's a little bit, a few small changes. We have the same thing with the Lord's Prayer that we have it given in Matthew and the public teaching of the Lord. And then we have it in Luke given again in a slightly modified form. It's like it's given twice to say, hey, this is important. You know, this is something that you need to know. So as we continue to study, then we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, as of with what we've looked at today, just see what a great model it is for us and start taking into account also, as we've seen today, all that the word has to say to you about prayer, how we need to seek to apply the directions that God has so faithfully provided to us in his word, like the disciples Let's, our, let's have this same attitude. Lord, teach us to pray. That's something that we should be asking for the way Jesus' disciples did and expecting him to answer. There is no excuse for ignorance about prayer when God has given us so much guidance in his word. There is every reason for gratitude because he has given us so much help. So please stand and let's pray. Lord, we come before you now with that prayer of your disciples that you were pleased to answer when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we know that you have given us an answer to that very request that you said, pray this prayer, pray, pray these words, pray in this manner, as you said in Matthew. And uh, we pray, Lord, that, that you would help us as we look at the prayer that you gave us to guide us that, Father, you would help us to understand it and that we would not look at it like a smorgasbord where we pick and choose a different, different thing that we might want to pray, but that we would look at it as something that is a balanced diet, so to speak. It's a, it's, we're, we're to pray all of these things. It gives us different uh, food groups, as it were, different, different things in the smorgasbord illustration. It gives us the things that we need to include in our prayers. And we pray, Lord, that we would, we would do that in our supplicating prayers. But may we not look at the Lord's Prayer only as that which would teach us, as it does not teach us of, 
so much of praises and thanksgivings and things like that, may we also recognize that there are many scriptures that teach us about that and that we would include those in our prayers as well. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be humble before you and to be teachable so that we will be able to receive instruction. And I pray that we would even care about praying. Uh, It may be that we're far away from you and not even interested in praying or learning how to pray well. Father, if that be the case, please, Lord, change that. Convict us. Deliver us from our bondage to sin and grant to us repentance that we may have a hunger and a desire. For, Lord, prayer is a beautiful and lovely thing. And there is so much to it and it enhances our relationship with you even in the very act of praying. But it also is something that you answer as we have seen before, that the means of grace actually do bring grace to us. They actually do bring changes. And prayer is one of the principal means of grace that we are to be engaged in. And we pray that we would not neglect our prayers. Father, if we ever think about neglecting prayer, there's almost always an area that will bring conviction to us. Even when we try to set aside time for prayer, we find that our wandering thoughts are, are a, a, a wretched thing. So help us, Lord. Teach us to pray and help us to pray. Give us grace that we may implement the things that we learn. May we do it, Lord, and may you be glorified through our prayers. And may we have the answers of the petitions that we bring to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song is number 34B. Going to use the same benediction that we had last week and blessing you in the name of our Lord that he would hear your prayers. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he grant you according to your heart's desire. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Amen.